right, while everybody's finding their seats, let me give you a couple of announcements. Uh, a week from Saturday is the men's prayer breakfast, and um, this is going to be a significant time because we're going to have a special guest speaker, so think about this and invite anybody and everybody you can think of because we're getting into the political season. I know most of you had no idea about that. But we are, and it's a good time to think about it. And I'm not sure what the congressional district number is, but this district that is just south of us, what? Seven. Seven. Okay, and this was the district that John Culberson had been the Republican representative, and it was flipped by uh, Lizzie Fletcher this last uh, election season. And it extends south of I-10 and Bel Air, uh, River Oaks Memorial, goes out west to the... uh, 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 energy corridor, and then goes north and picks up that area along along uh, 1960 or Highway 6, and then goes up into Jersey Village and Cy Fair. So, uh, so, some of you men live in that district, and so you need to pay attention. But Wesley Hunt, who was actually interviewed on Fox and Friends this morning uh, for a very very brief time. Uh, is running for that seat uh, for the as a Republican. Uh, he's a uh, bright man. Went to West Point. He's got three master's degrees. He flew Apache helicopters. Uh, served three three tours in the Middle East. And he's uh, just absolutely tremendous. And he's a believer. He grew up here in Houston. Graduated from high school at St. John's, where he was a captain of his high school football team. Then he went on. He was captain of his. Uh, West Point football team. He grew up going to Champions Forest Baptist Church here, so he's pretty well grounded in basics of the gospel and Christianity. So he checks off a lot of a lot of boxes, and so that's good. So he will be speaking, and I've invited the men from uh, uh, other uh, Bible churches, and Grace Bible Church, and Sugarland Bible Church, and Pine Valley, uh, to join us as well on that particular morning. So we might need a. Uh, an extra egg or two, John, for uh, for that that morning. Jeff might even show up if we can wake up and get get him out of bed. So it's uh, that's going to be a good uh, good morning. That's right. You'll probably be in China then. So since since it's twelve hours difference, if you're back, you'll you'll be awake, wide awake. It'll be it'll be mid afternoon for you or something. All right. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're spiritually prepared for our uh, study this evening, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, just such a tremendous time that we have to come together to be refreshed, encouraged by your word, to face the reality of living in a fallen world, to face the reality of your grace and your goodness to us, 
to face the reality of our salvation and nevertheless still having to live in a fallen world with all of its uh, anxieties and frustrations and difficulties and obstacles, learning to trust in you and to walk uh, humbly before you as we grow spiritually. And Father, we pray that as we come to the conclusion of this study in Psalm 89, that you will help us to to see the application and the implications of it for our own lives, for our own thinking, learning to trust you, learning to talk to you openly, honestly about uh, the challenges, frustrations, difficulties that we face in life, and learning how to pray more uh, biblically as we address the issues of our lives. And Father, help us to remember that we are put here to serve you and to glorify you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, and we will pick up with a little review prior to verse 38, but we're down to approximately verse 38, and if the Lord is gracious, we will uh, we will make it through the rest of this particular psalm. This is an extremely interesting psalm. And the things that he says as he gets to the end and gets to his prayer of petition ought to resonate with every one of us if we are honest with God. The trouble is most Christians aren't honest with God. Uh, We hit situations in our lives where we trust God, we claim promises, we're walking with the Lord, we're doing everything right and nothing goes right. Everything is going wrong. We claim promises and it's like, Uh, God is just ignoring us, and whatever happened just seems to get worse and worse and worse. And yet, for a lot of Christians who really have a, a false view of their relationship with God, they're just not honest with God. And I've said this many times, you've heard me say this, that, that when we read the Psalms, we get a pattern for prayer. And part of that pattern for prayer at times is expressing honestly what we think about what God is doing. That means that sometimes we get angry with God. Sometimes you read in the Psalms, and the psalmist is extremely frustrated with God. Sometimes they're confused. Sometimes they're angry. Sometimes they're resentful. Sometimes they're just throwing up their hands in exasperation, and they tell God about it. And you tell a lot of Christians that, well, if you need to tell God off, do so. (gasps) That's blasphemy. Well, then you've got to throw out a lot of psalms. And the reason is, is because if we're not honest with God, we're not going to be honest with ourselves about what's going on. The, the, in, in prayer, a lot of times, as you see in the psalms, there's a process going on as you think through your problem and you think through God's character and God's promises. It changes your perspective on your problem And it changes your perspective on what God is doing and even the timing. And that's one thing that we all have experienced at times is, God, you're supposed to fix this yesterday, and I'm afraid you're not going to fix this until maybe my life is almost over, if then. And there's just a lot of very superficial assumptions that people bring with them to prayer and to their relationship with God. And we see some of that in this psalm because if you remember, as we've taken a lot of time to go through the first uh, 37 verses, 
what we see here is this remarkable, remarkable meditation upon the power of God. It goes all the way down to about verse 19. And it just, it's great, it's elevating. And we're thinking, how in the world could someone who starts off with such a magnificent focus on the attributes of God and his power and his omnipotence and his might, singing of the mercies, the chesed of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And then when we get down to verse 38, we're going to discover that there's a series of three verses. Actually, it goes down even into 42, 41's uh, structured a little differently. But it goes down into verse 42 where he's blaming God for every problem that they're facing. He shifts in the Greek, I mean, in the Hebrew grammar, starting at verse 38, there's a radical shift in the focus. But you, God, this is your fault. You've caused all this to happen. And he's blaming God. And see how his tone shifts so rapidly. And don't sit there and act like this didn't, hasn't happened to you. Because if we're honest, it's happened to every one of us. We get caught up in the details of our lives, and we get upset about the way things are going because we think God ought to be doing things differently. And then we try to cover it up. Hello? God's omniscient. He knows exactly the level of frustration in your life and in mine. He knows when we're angry. He knows when we're upset. And he doesn't like it when he hears these holier-than-thou prayers that are masking underlying dishonesty with ourselves and resentments and an obstacle. We're never going to really get past that if we're not honest with God about what's going on. And so when we look at this last section, as we're going to today, it goes down to verse 52. It's really talking about how God is, let me back that slide up, he resolves our problems, but in his timing and in his way. And that's where the rub comes, because we want him to handle it the way we think it ought to be handled, uh, according to our time schedule. And this is a very difficult situation. In fact, this is one of the reasons why you can start, as I did, with with the beginning of the psalm, and you see the uh, the subscript there, the contemplation of uh, Ethan or Eitan, the Ezraite, and we know he's mentioned by Solomon and in Second Kings or First Kings chapter four, he, Solomon is the writer of Kings. At least recognizes Solomon is more wise than Atan the Ezraite, but we don't know exactly when he lived. And there's elements that come along into play when we get from verse thirty-eight down to fifty-one, where it sounds like Israel is on the verge of the fifth cycle of discipline. They're really being hammered by God, and it doesn't really fit his time period. I suspect that there's something prophetic going on towards the end of this. But then it's too personal. It's too personal. It's, it's that the writer is expressing his own exasperation with what God is allowing to happen to Israel and the shame and reproach that that brings upon his, on his people. So there's something there where, where Ezra is like many of us. We're proud of who we are. We're proud of our church. We're proud of what God is doing. All of a sudden, something happens. We're going, Lord, this is bringing shame on the situation. Israel was proud of Solomon's temple. They were proud of the way God had blessed David and the way God had blessed Solomon. And, and now, all of a sudden, he's pulled the rug out from under Israel. 
But if we remember, Solomon led the nation into idolatry. And as part of the discipline, we go back to the five cycles of discipline. I'm not going to go through those tonight, but those are listed in, and laid out in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And you read through those, and you see how God is bringing discipline on the nation. He causes the nation to go through a civil war where the ten northern tribes uh, rebel against the Davidic king, and it just leaves... Uh, the Davidic king with the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and the nation is just torn asunder. And this is a breach that goes on for uh, for the next, um, let me see, about 300 years. And so this is a major, major problem that takes place. And the nation does not recover from that and will not recover from that. There will not be true unity until the Lord Jesus Christ returns as the Messiah and you have him establish his kingdom. So this is, this is a, a really interesting, interesting scenario. And we need to understand exactly what's going on here. Now, we have been studying in the Davidic covenant coming out of our study in 2 Samuel 7 for about six months looking at a lot of different things, but the Davidic covenant itself promised David three things, an eternal house or dynasty, an eternal kingdom, one without end that would go on from generation to generation, and an eternal throne, which the throne stands for the one who sits on it, so that's basically saying an eternal ruler. We've looked at the structure here that there's basically three divisions The first divisions, the first 18 verses, where the focus is on God's attributes, his character, his love, that is his chesed love, his unconditional loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness, and his faithfulness, emuna. So these are tied together, but also there's focus on God as the creator, his power, his might. All of that underlie the fact that God can accomplish what he wishes to accomplish, and if God promises to do something, he will uh, bring it to pass. And then in verses 19 to 37, we didn't quite finish this last time, we have God's uh, rehearsal of God's promise to David. Etan adds a few things in our understanding of the Davidic covenant and what has been uh, promised to, to David. And, um, and this is just enhances everything. And then we get into the real problem down in verses 38 to 52 is there's a serious threat to the Davidic monarchy that looks like if he hasn't been toppled from his throne, he's lost his authority, and it threatens the stability, even the survival of the southern kingdom, which is why some people place it later uh, in history, for example, around the time of either the invasion of Sennacherib in uh, uh, around the late 8th century B.C., which is around 722 to 700, or even into the time of the initial Nebuchadnezzar invasions around 605. So I don't think it's that late. I think that there may be an element of hyperbole here, but we just can't be sure because there's not enough information given to really tie it down. But we can understand what the sentiments are, we can understand what the thoughts are, and we can understand exactly uh, what is being expressed in this situation. And it's a prayer. The whole psalm is a prayer calling upon God to fulfill a promise. The promise that is claimed is the promise of the Davidic covenant, which is outlined in those verses from verses 19 down to 37. 
And in step two, he's thinking through these doctrinal rationales. It starts with him thinking through the character of God and how that applies to the situation. And then he's going to think through exactly what the implications of God's promise are going to be. And we're really going to see this in the last three verses of this section where God says, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me, it shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. And you can just hear a ton after he writes that going, well, then what in the world is going on right now? I mean, this country is falling apart, and you just made this promise, and sure does look like you're keeping this promise because everything is falling apart. And that's why he shifts gears in verse 8 and says, but you have cast off, you have uh, been furious, you have renounced, you have profaned, you have broken down, you have brought this stronghold, you have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. And so he's just blaming God for every problem that's going on. And finally, as he is honest with his his irritation, his resentment, his uh, frustration with what God is doing, he eventually comes back to a focus upon God's faithfulness and his promise, ending the whole psalm with the statement, blessed be the Lord forevermore, amen and amen. So that gives you a real-life example of how he used the faith rest drill to shape his prayers to God. And when we understand these things as believers, it ought to radically change how we pray. Not that we're always going to fly off the handle and get frustrated or irritated with God, but there are times when we really feel that way and we need to express it. What happens with a lot of Christians is they don't express it and they're, they're having it, and that leads to a dishonest relationship with God. I'm not saying cross the line and be blasphemous, but be honest with your frustration, your irritation with God. He knows you're not going to surprise him by telling him, you know, I'm really upset with you, Lord. You know, I have been trusting you, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I'm relying upon you, and look at how my life is just falling apart. I don't understand. You know, that's honesty. You're, and none of us get past any problems if we're not honest with the problem and, and, and honest with God, honest with ourselves. So in the second division, as we laid it out last time, we came down to the fourth section of the second division where God promises that his, uh, his covenant would never be canceled, though they would be hindered by sin and disobedience. And the result of sin and disobedience would bring into play the five cycles of discipline would bring into play those stages of divine discipline that are laid out in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy chapter 28. A couple of things as we kind of review for a second, I wanted to bring something out last time. As God is making this promise of his covenant, he says, I will appoint him, that is the Davidic heir, to be my firstborn son, the most exalted of the earth's kings. I think this is definitely messianic, and it uses that term for firstborn. It's the Hebrew word bakor, and it it doesn't indicate firstborn in in order, but the one who is the designated heir who receives the double blessing, the double portion. Now, we went through this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning in the Ephesian series, talking about how uh, inheritance in in the Old Testament 
frequently went to the younger, not the elder, not the firstborn, according to the law of primogenitor. The oldest, the firstborn male, would receive the inheritance typically. But God is not going to do things according to human viewpoint, according to human standards. He is going to bless the one whom he chooses, whom he chooses, who is not the firstborn. But he becomes designated. According to ancient Near Eastern custom, the father could designate who the firstborn is. So firstborn doesn't mean firstborn in terms of birth order. Firstborn means the preeminent one, the one who receives the lion's share of the blessing, the one who receives the double portion. He is the one who is elevated to that uh, distinguished position. The first indication of this is the statement in uh, Exodus 4.22 I mentioned last time. The Lord said that Israel is my son, the firstborn. Now, Israel wasn't the first of all the nations, but Israel is elevated above all of the other nations to this position of preeminence and given the privilege of the Abrahamic covenant and the subsequent covenants. This is foreshadowing of the role of the Lord Jesus Christ because we have this same terminology that people stumble over. When they read this in the New Testament, for example, in Romans 8.29, uh, of course, everybody here is familiar with Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For him, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. In other words, for him whom he foreknew in terms of knowledge ahead of time, he also, and predestined means foreordained, and that doesn't have to do with necessarily determining your destiny, but determining your, your mission within the body of Christ, to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's not talking about choosing who will be saved. It's ch- choosing the destiny of those who are, are, who are saved to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among his brethren, the preeminent one among his brethren. Jews the same way in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. So in his deity, he is above and beyond all creatures. But in his humanity, he is designated the preeminent one over all creation. He gets the double portion. That's the focal point there. Not the first. He's not born. That's the Arian heresy that he's the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ is created at some point in eternity past or that he becomes... Uh, promoted when he is baptized by John the Baptist, that's the adoptionistic heresy, but that he is declared by God the Father as the preeminent one among mankind, and so he gets the double portion. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn. Now, the who there is a masculine singular pronoun. So that's referring not to the church. Church is ecclesia. That's a feminine noun. So the who there refers back to the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead. And not, that's not talking about the first fruits from the dead. He is the preeminent one. All of these uses follow that, that emphasis, the preeminent one. And in Hebrews 1, six we read, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says... Let all the angels of God worship him. He is the preeminent one. 
Why? Because in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, this is where we see some intersection with what we studied on, in Ephesians in heirship and inheritance the last several Sundays, that in these last days, God spoken to us by his son. His son has been appointed heir of all things. That's his preeminent role. That is what is related to his being the firstborn son. So in our study now of uh, Psalm 89, we're at this third section, Psalm 89, uh, 26 to 29, where uh, God makes three statements promising this intimate relationship with himself through an eternal covenant. And he has declared in verses 28 to 29 that this covenant with David would be eternal. It's not going to be temporal. So that means that you have to approach, if you're living at the time of Eitan, he's telling Eitan, you have to approach this situation that you're facing not on the basis of emotion. And it's never right to approach a problem on the basis of emotion. You have to approach the problem on the basis of the promise of God, that no matter how it looks, no matter how it feels, you can't judge reality on the basis of emotion and feeling. You have to judge it on the basis of the promise of God, and that's why this is here, to remind Eitan this is the promise of God. It's eternal. So whatever it looks like, God is not forgetting his promise. God has not turned his back on the Davidic dynasty. God has not turned his back on Jerusalem. God's not turned his back on Israel. And so this is the statement that God made in those two verses. My mercy, that is my chesed, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. You can't say it more strongly than that using poetry. And then we get into the next section where God's promises, God states his promises will never be canceled, though they may be hindered by sin and disobedience. And that was in verses 30 to 37, which we went through last time. And in verses 30 to 32, he basically talks about divine discipline, brings this into the subject that some of the sons, some of David's descendants will break the law. They'll, they'll forsake the law. This is, this is tantamount to treason. Because God is the ultimate ruler over Israel, and they're violating his law. They forsake my Torah, my instruction, and do not walk in my judgments. They break my statutes and don't keep my commandments. In other words, you've committed high treason against, against God. You violated, they've gone into idolatry, and they have violated the first commandments. And so God says, I'll punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with the stripes. Subtext, Eitan, this is what's going on right now. This is what you're witnessing is this promise of discipline on the Davidic heir because he has uh, broken the Torah, he's violated the judgment, statutes, and commandments. And then in verse 33, he says, nevertheless, contrast, nevertheless, my chesed, my loving kindness, my loyalty to the covenant, I will not utterly take away from him. Even though he's given me every reason... To violate the contract, even though he's violated the contract time and time again, even though he has broken all of the stipulations of the contract, nevertheless, I'm choosing, God says, not to break that contract. I am going to maintain the contract 
It, and that is why we say it is unconditional, eternal covenant. He will not, God says, I will not allow my faithfulness, my imuna, to fail. And so again, we see the use of both of these terms, chesed and imuna, as we have from verse 1, emphasizing the character of God. This is his bedrock certainty, the stability that we can count on, that even when we fail, he doesn't fail. In verse 34, we read uh, God saying, My covenant I will not break. This is his decision. I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out from my, from my lips. So Israel has profaned the covenant. Israel has trashed the covenant. It, Israel has broken it time and time again, and it's for, forgotten all the commands. It never observes the Sabbath. They're not observing the sabbatical year. It's not it's observing the um, the, the Jubilee year, they're not observing the Passover when Hezekiah came to the king. If you carefully read the text in, in Chronicles, it says they had not observed the, the Passover for years. Nobody knew what it was about anymore. He had a whole generation that had no clue what the Passover was or what the purpose of the Passover was. They had never seen it. They had an apostate priesthood. Everybody had to be uh, retaught, reinstructed. All the priests had to be cleansed. And before they can observe the Passover, in fact, they had to put off the observance of the Passover a month so they could get the nation spiritually prepared for it. So they violated everything. Now that brings us down to uh, this, this petition that is brought into focus in verses 38 to 52, where Etan is petitioning God to remain faithful to his promises to David, even though sin and divine discipline made it appear that the covenant was canceled. His experience is God's not faithful. When he looks at what's happening to Israel, his experience is saying God's forgotten us. This is one of the biggest problems. I remember reading this years and years ago in something Dr. Ryrie wrote, and it's one of the pithiest and most accurate things I've ever heard. You either judge your life and your experience by the Word of God or you judge the Word of God by your life and your experience. And you can fit anything into that. You can, this is what's going on right now. You have to learn to judge what's going on in the world on the basis of what the Word of God says. And the Word of God says that man is a sinner and the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And yet, in response to these horrific, horrible mass shootings that are taking place, everybody has to is jumping to dance to the tune of the liberal radicals who want it. We have to do something. We have to do something. You can't predict what the sin nature is going to do. We have all kinds of laws on the books that are not enforced. If we enforced every one of them, this probably would be much more difficult for something like this to happen. We don't need more laws. We need more enforcement. But you can have all the laws in the world, and it, law does not control the sin nature. Because the heart is deceptive and wicked above all things, who can know it? Who can predict it? You can't predict what somebody is going to do. And a lot of these laws, these so-called red flag laws, are just as horrible because what basis are you going to uh, determine who will commit this crime and, and then punish them or restrict their freedom? And on what criterion? Nobody in the government is omniscient. Most of them aren't even knowledgeable. They're ignorant. 
It's so sad. I can't tell you how many briefings I have sat in over the years related to how to talk to congressmen and why we need to lobby congressmen and talk to congressmen and educate them on just the narrow area of what's going on in the Middle East because many, many people are elected to Congress because they've done well in their community, they've had a successful business, they've been a good veterinarian, they've been part of Kiwanis, they've been a good dentist, a good doctor, they've been a good businessman, everybody likes them, they're hail fellow and well met, but they can't find Israel on a map to save their life. They can't figure out where Vietnam is because they're looking in the Western Hemisphere. That's a real example. Uh, they can't find things. They don't know. They're really good at being able to run a shoe store or being a doctor, but they are not necessarily knowledgeable on taxation and tax codes and law codes and all of these other things. So we as citizens need to educate them because they are fellow citizens. And otherwise, we're just leaving them to their staff. And who knows, are we electing their staff? I mean, they've got a bureaucracy that works for them. And who knows where those people are coming from and what their background is. So it, it can be a real mess, and it is a real mess. But anyway, we have to judge reality by the Word of God. We have to judge reality by truth and not by our experience, not by our emotions, and not by our limited frame of reference. And so that's what God is telling telling Eitan through this, this whole situation. But Eitan is going to react a little bit because he's very frustrated with what he sees going on around him. And that's what's covered in verses 38 to 45, where the psalmist is lamenting the discipline on the king in light of the promises of, of, of God. He, he doesn't understand it. It's, it. it's not what he expected. And then we'll get to the second part in verses 46 to 52, where he calls on God to remember his oath and to help him personally uh, before the king dies and to understand what's going on. Now, this is what I pointed out earlier, is reading through verses 38 through 40, and you see how the subtleties here is that he's really blaming God for everything that's happening. It's but, but, very strong uh, statement in the Hebrew uh, where the grammar, the syntax of the Hebrew is shifting uh, the focus, and it sets up a very, very strong uh, adversative clause here where it is in contrast to everything that is going on uh, on prior to this. Uh, the grammar indicates that strong contrast. It starts off with a conjunction plus a pronoun. Normally, a sentence begins with a conjunction and, and then a verb. And he said, and he wrote, and he walked. But here it starts off with a, a conjunction uh, and a noun, which indicates, or a pronoun here, it indicates a very, very strong contrast between what happens after verse 38 and what is said before. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious. You have renounced the covenant. You have profaned his crown. You have broken down the hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. Whose fault is it? He's saying, it's your fault, God. Look at what you are doing. What about this promise? So there's an edginess to Eitan here as he's talking to God. He does not understand why God isn't going along with what he promised, which means he's bringing his own limited expectation of what he thinks God ought to do 
to the table rather than just resting and relaxing and trusting in God. What's interesting is the language here. He uses two verbs. One's translated in the New King James as cast off. The other is translated abhorred. But these two words are close synonyms in the Hebrew so that you will find that in the way they are handled, for example, the word for cast off is zanach, which means to reject and to spurn and to detest. Well, those same words, English words, are used to define the Hebrew word uh, abar, which is, or excuse me, ma'as, which is translated as, as abhorred. So it, they're very close synonyms, and it indicates a, a extremely strong feelings, a, a, an extreme sense of opposition here uh, with God, that he's, he's, he's just confrontational with God at this point. But you have cast off and abhorred. And this word cast off is interesting because it's a word that, that is used in other, other contexts in order to bring out, the, um, bring out the aspect of God's discipline on Israel. And I chose one passage to put up here to illustrate this, and this is from Zechariah 10.6 when God is bringing the nation back together. And this is his promise toward the future. God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy. What's our word for mercy? Hesed. I have chesed on them. So this is an ultimate fulfillment of, of the prayer in Psalm 89. Because I have mercy on them, they shall be as though I had not cast them aside. There's the same word that we have uh, back there in Psalm 89, Zanach. Uh, for I am the Lord their God, I will hear them. So this is going to be fulfilled, but not in the lifetime of Atan. So this, this gives us a, a picture of how this all relates to the divine discipline of the five cycles of discipline. Now that second word uh, translated abhorred is the word ma'as, which again means the same thing, reject, spurn, despise. And so some, some translations will state this and just, they'll just flip the words and they'll say, but instead of you have cast off and abhorred, they'll translate it. Uh, but you have spurned and rejected, uh, or you have rejected and spurned. Uh, so it gets the point across, though, that what he is saying is, God, you've just completely forgotten about us, and you're just you're, you're flushing the Davidic monarchy uh, down the commode. And he sa- and then his second accusation is, you have been furious. And it means to be angry. It's a hitpael, which is causative, which sort of in- also intensifies the sense here. It, it means, and it's translated this way in a, a, a num- number of translations. Golden Gay, in his commentary, says that you've raged against your uh, uh, anointed. And in the uh, Tanakh, it translates it, you have been enraged with... Uh, you're anointed with your messianic king. It's not talking about the ultimate fulfillment of the Messiah, but of the uh, one who is uh, Davidic. And then the next accusation, verse 39, says, you have renounced the covenant of your servant. This is a Hebrew word, na'ar, 
which means to abhor. This is only used a couple of times in Hebrew in the Old Testament, and the other time is used in Lamentations 2.7. Now remember, Jeremiah writes Lamentations after the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, 586 B.C. He is looking at the ruins of, of Jerusalem and the defeat of the kingdom of Judah, the destruction of the Davidic monarchy, and he is lamenting what has happened because they have rejected God. And the whole context is the divine discipline, the fifth cycle of discipline of 586 B.C. And so Jeremiah writes, the Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. So that's the idea in this word here, uh, uh, na'ar, meaning to abandon. So in Psalm eighty-nine thirty-nine, you have renounced or you have abandoned the covenant of your servant. This is really strong language, very confrontational. And then he goes on to say, you have profaned his crown by casting it to the, to the ground. Now, that's an interesting word. The word for crown is a Hebrew word, netzer. And in the, in the lexicons, they give two meanings, consecration and crown. Why? What's the connection? Because the one who is crowned has been consecrated. He's been set aside by God. He has been appointed to this high position of leadership. And so the crown represents his commissioning and his consecration as, as, as a leader. And what Eitan is saying here is you have profane, you have made him common. He's not unique or distinct. See, the opposite of being profane is to be holy, is to be set apart to God. You have just profaned him. You, you've rejected all this. You've cast, his, his, cast it to the ground so that he is no longer clean or pure. And that relates to his being set apart unto God. And we'll get to that in a minute in another verse that is difficult for some to for many to translate so he then goes on and says well you've broken down all the hedges that's the walls and and the interesting word the hebrew word that's translated hedges here is a word that describes the sheepfold the fence the pen into which the sheep are placed and that's their protection it says you've broken down the sheepfold so the sheep can will be scattered and and wander away and then you have brought his strongholds to ruin. Now, you would think by the way they translate the Psalms that strongholds sometimes is the same word that's used for a fortress, for a matzada. But that's not the word that's used here. It's a different word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. And it is only used a couple of times in the Old Testament. But again, it's used in Lamentations. And in Lamentations, it talks about uh, Jeremiah is talking about how God has destroyed the the strongholds of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in, in here, the Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up all her palaces. He's destroyed her strongholds, her walls, her fortifications, and he's increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. Now, I want you to notice the first line here in this verse. It says, the Lord was like an enemy. So... Jeremiah sees that in divine discipline, God sets himself against Israel. When a believer is so rebellious after a lengthy period of time, God will set himself against them in their arrogance. And you've heard when it talks about um, 
that God sets himself against the, pro- the proud. God is against the proud. That the word that is used there is a word that is sometimes used in a military context of setting himself against in a military context or making war against the proud. And that's, that's the idea here. God will turn himself against the believer and against the nation in order to eventually bring them back, to take them through that, that discipline. Now, up through verse 40, what we see is this accusation against God. And then starting in verse 41, there's a shift to think about what is happening to the anointed one. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is ripe for the pickings, and everybody goes through, and they're just stealing everything of value that had belonged to him. So it's using him to refer to the king, but the king relates to the nation. They're identified as one. So not only is the king, not only is the king being plundered, the nation is being plundered. They are just everything is, and that's what happened with the troops. Of the, of the enemy, whether it was the Assyrians in the northern kingdom or the Babylonians or later the Romans. They just went through Jerusalem and anything of value, they either destroyed or took it with them. And so everything is, is plundered, and the nation then became a reproach to their nations, to, to their neighbors, because the nations looked at them and said, well, what value is this God of yours? Is he's going to let this happen to you? Verse 42, again, there's this, sense of accusation of God. You've exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You've made all his enemies rejoice. So here it's combining the accusation with the focus on the king. But when it says you have exalted the right hand of your enemies, that is a metaphor. We've already seen it. Back in verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong as your hand. Remember, arm and hand often relate to power. They're they're, uh, anthropo. Uh, morphisms that relate to strength and therefore to power, and so they're anthropomorphisms for God's power. Strong is high is your right hand. Right hand is most people are right-handed, so that is their greatest source of strength and power is on their on their strong side. So here he's saying, God, you have a mighty arm. Strong is uh, excuse me. Uh, verse 42, you've exalted the right hand of the adversaries. You've made the, the adversaries really strong against us, and that makes all of our enemies rejoice because we're a reproach. Not only that, you've turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. This is a play on words. Did you catch it? You wouldn't ever catch it. The word there that is translated edge is the Hebrew word for rock, tzor. And so there's a play on words here that, that ta- saying, God, you've turned back the, the rock, usually the flint of his sword. So he's saying something, you've dulled the edge of his sword. That's the idea there. But by using that word sore, there's a play on words there because God is our rock. And God's no longer the rock for Israel. And so there's a play on words there to bring about the fact that God, rather than being the defense, is now the one who is the the uh, enemy of Israel. You've dulled his sword, and you've not sustained him in the battle. And then verse 44, you have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. Now, that just doesn't seem to fit. What does it mean you've made his glory cease? 
Well, there's a lot of debate on this, and I didn't have an extra 20 hours to try to work my way through the conclusion on this. But what you have here is a word for glory that is not the normal word uh, chavad uh, for glory. But it's, it has, it could, it, in some context, if they re-point the word, it has the idea of splendor. So that's what you see in the NET, and also uh, NASB uses splendor. So it's, it's similar, that you brought an end to the splendor of the throne, the splendor of his kingdom, the glory of his kingdom. And then the second line would seem to expand on that. You have cast it. Uh, you have cast that down uh, to the ground. But there is a variant on this that is uh, taken as the primary reading by John Goldengay in his commentary on the Psalms, which argues for... Remember I said back a few minutes ago that, that God had cast his, his crown to the ground. He had profaned it. He had made it common. It was no longer distinct. Well, well... Purity is, and cleanness is related to being set apart to God's service. And so the idea here is that he is saying you have made, you being God, you have made his, the Davidic king, you have made his purity cease, his sanctification cease. He's no longer set apart to your service. You have profaned him, in other words. So that, that makes sense in a broader context. Because that's what is, God has done is by bringing discipline on the Davidic king. Uh, on the one hand, you could say, yes, his glory has ceased. But on the other hand, his being set apart as distinctive to God's service, that's been wiped out because of this divine discipline. And as a result of that, his throne has been cast down uh, to the ground, just as we saw uh, earlier in... Um, or was that in ver- at the end of verse thirty nine you have profaned his grant crown by casting it to the ground, so here it's a casting his throne down to the ground, so there's a tremendous parallelism there, so I think that 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 seems to be a have a stronger position than the other position and then he says, the days of his youth you have shortened you have covered him with shame now now if you're trying to pin that historically on somebody. You ha- that's when we have difficulty because you, then you're looking for some king that died rather young. A couple of options there, but they don't fit the time frame of Aton. This is what gets into, okay, why we're confused as to exactly when this psalm was written. So that brings us up through verse 45, and he gets through with his little rant against God, and that now that his rant's over with, He's going to come back to a focus on how God, what his prayer should be, and he resolves his his difficulty. And uh, now that he has, um, now that he has gotten all of that off of his chest, he's able to focus on God's plan and purpose. So this takes us to the last seven verses of the text, where Etan calls on God to remember his oath and to help him. Before the king dies. See, that's where the timing issue, if you remember, I titled this, God's going to solve this in his own time. Whereas Eitan, I think, steps out of bounds here a little bit because he wants this to be resolved in his own lifetime or in this king's lifetime before the king dies. So in verse 46 we read, 
How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Now, I don't know about you, but I've prayed something similar to this on a number of occasions in my life. Lord, how long are you going to keep this testing going? How long are you going to put me in this furnace? When are we going to, you know, say, okay, the test is over with you. We can relax a little bit. And our, and it all has to do with the fact that we want patience and we want it yesterday. And if I didn't get patience yesterday, well, what's the problem? Let's get it over with. God's timing is not the same as our timing. And so that's what, what's going on with Eitan here. How long is this discipline going to go on? Can't we just get it over with and elevate the king and move forward? And then he focuses on himself. We see a certain amount of his uh, self-orientation throughout the end of this. You know, how God, you did this. God, you did that. So we see how he's, he's really, really irritated. He's right in the middle of this difficult situation. He says, remember how short my time is. I'm not going to be around much longer. For what futility have you created all the children of men? Isn't this just ridiculous that we have to go through all of this? It's just emptiness. It's futile that, that you just take us through this over and over and over again, and we don't ever seem to grow. It, it, his expression, his frustration is coming out again. He said, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Selah. So that Selah sets apart these three verses where he is expressing once again a measure of his frustration with God, God's plan, and God's, uh, God's timing. He wants God to, com- to fulfill his oath very, very short- shortly. But now it's like he takes a breath and he gets refocused on God's plan. Verse 49, Lord... Where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? See, this brings him back to the character of God. It brings him back to the promise of God. He still wants to know, well, where, where's your promise? Because the Davidic house now is just appears to be completely abandoned and broken down. But we know that your loving kindness hangs in there. That's been his thrust all the way through this, this psalm. And then in verse 50, he says, Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants. This is an interesting pe- petition here. Because what happens, and you see that the apostles in the New Testament use this kind of prayer and, and others, that, Lord, when the unbeliever looks at what's going on here, what they're basically going to do is ridicule us for having trusted you because it looks like you're not capable and it looks like you can't take care of us and it looks like we have a totally misplaced faith and so their reproach is on us. They make fun of us. They ridicule us. And so he says, Lord, remember this. We believe in you and should not endure this level of reproach because of who you are. And so then, and he parallels that in the second line of the, of the verse, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples. We're, we, he's taking it very personally that we are being ridiculed and we are, 
They're making fun of me, and they're making fun of us because we have trust in you. And he says, then verse 51, with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. So again, he, he, he doesn't really resolve this well. He just, he just brings it to this, this, this point where he's saying, we're all just being humiliated because the Davidic monarchy has been broken down. And then it's like he just stops. And he says, blessed be the Lord forevermore. He doesn't get to a point in his thinking of, of a strong resolution that, Lord, I will praise your name because of what he doesn't get there. He started with praise, but at the end, it's just, I don't understand. But I'm going to bless, praise the Lord. Blessed here is used in that sense of, of praising God. Praise the Lord forevermore. Because he realizes, I don't understand. I don't comprehend what is going on. I just have to stop and put the praise on you, Lord, because you're going to resolve this in one way or another. And I need to trust you. And that's where we are a lot of times. We get to a point where we're just hemmed in by whatever the tests are, whatever the circumstances are, and we express our frustration to God. We claim the promises, but it, it, we're not going to change the circumstances. We don't believe in that stupid, silly, name it, claim it, prosperity theology that if we just claim it in the name of Jesus, then everything's going to work out and God's going to change all the circumstances. We just hang in there, as Job did, and we go forward trusting the Lord, even though the way forward is going to be quite difficult. And we just learn that no matter what, we are going to praise the Lord. And this takes us back to a passage we all know and love. We sing the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. This is what... what Jeremiah says when he is looking at the ruins, the smoking ruins of, of Jerusalem, and he says, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. See, this isn't a superficial view of the Christian life, which is I'm going to have this sort of exuberant, bouncy joy all the time. I have joy, but I have to understand that's a stable mental attitude that at times is coupled with grief, it's coupled with sorrow, just as our Lord Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is, the, the text says he's got profound sorrow. But at the same time, he's got joy because that never changes for him. He doesn't sin. He's just weighed down by the circumstances. And that's what Jeremiah is saying here. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Paul says, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And the word for grieve there is the same word that relates to the sorrow and the grief that the Lord Jesus Christ had in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we see the mental attitude shift in Jeremiah. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is thinking about the character of God that gives us a confident expectation of the future whenever that comes and however it comes. And Jeremiah says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. But his compassions didn't mean that Jerusalem's immediately rebuilt. His compassions didn't mean that, that, that 
these captives are going to be hauled off to Babylon and others are going to flee and go down to Egypt and they're going to be away from Jerusalem and the promised land for a, a generation or more. But even in the midst of all the crisis, the catastrophe, and the chaos of our life, God's mercies are going to continue, and we won't be consumed. His compassions don't fail. They're new every morning, not every week, every year, but every morning, day by day, living one day at a time, and he concludes, great is your faithfulness. His circumstances don't change. Eitan's circumstances didn't change. Finally, he just had to say, well, praise the Lord forevermore. He's in control. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Jeremiah says. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. He has no more understanding of why God is bringing this suffering into the li- his life and the life of other faithful believers and all the unfaithful believers than Job understood his suffering. It boils down to simply trusting God because he's got all the facts and I don't. And if I knew all the facts, I couldn't comprehend it, so I just have to trust in him. The Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. doesn't say the waiting is good. doesn't say the waiting is easy. doesn't say the, cha- the, the circumstances change while you're waiting. It says the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly. There's no resolution there. It's just hoping, confident that someday it's going to work out, and I'm going to wait, and one day I'll see the deliverance and the salvation of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to be reminded that we really don't know it all. We know your promises, but sometimes our limited experiential uh, our experiential appraisal just doesn't approach what's really going on in your plan. We're limited in our perception. We're limited in our interpretation. We're limited in our, our, our understanding, and we just need to learn to trust you, to relax and realize you will bring about your promise. You will be faithful to it, and you will bring it to pass. But it may not be the way we think, and it may not be according to our time frame. And we need to just rest in you. We need to wait patiently and hope in you. And that doesn't mean the circumstances will change, but what needs to change is our mental attitude and the way we think about the circumstances not going the way we want them to and learn to reverse our thinking, to have our thoughts renewed and exchanged for the truth of your word so that we can reflect the character of the Son of God in our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen.